my name is Michael, and I serve here as a pastor. I'm thankful that uh, you guys have come. Um, I was born in 1972, so that would make me 41 years old. So some of you might not remember this or were alive to actually see this, but uh, a miracle took place in 1980. I'm going to show you 21 seconds of footage that took place in 1980. Now, keep in mind, they didn't have like HD 1080p, you know, back in the 80s. So it's a little bit blurry, but this is a miracle that took place in 1980. In uh, 1980, I was, uh, I was a swimmer, and so I happened to be at a swim meet uh, when the Winter Games were going on in the 80s, and uh, I remember very clearly they stopped. It was in a big natatorium. Uh, they stopped the meet, and the announcer came over uh, the sound system uh, and said, the Americans have just defeated the Soviet Union, and you feel like we would have just won a major war. But to beat the Soviets back in the 80s, which was the undefeatable team, uh, they called it a miracle. And specifically, Al Michaels, I don't know if he planned to say this, but genius. 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown on right now. Morrow up to Silk. Five seconds left in the game. And then he shouts, do you believe in miracles? And that's actually a phrase that has been trademarked because no one else had said it at least like that. And so now he makes money every time someone says it. So you're welcome, Al Michaels. So my question for you, Al Michaels asked it, and it's a great question. Do you believe in miracles? And he screamed in front of an international audience, yes! Now I'm not sure if uh, the Americans beating the Soviets in a, a hockey game would constitute a miracle, but... In his mind, it did. So my question is, do you believe in miracles? Now, I think you're obviously going to get a varied response, even from just folks here. Uh, Some people would say no. Uh, And the only reason that they would say no is because I've never seen one. I've never experienced one. I've never been around one. So my answer to do I believe in miracles is based on my lack of experience of a miracle. So no. Uh, it's a friendly no, but it's still a no nonetheless. Some people would take it a little bit further and get a little bit more hostile to people and actually ridicule people who actually believe in miracles. Um, Richard Dawkins is uh, very well known. He's in his uh, late uh, 70s, early 80s right now, scientist, um, uh, professor, uh, but very well known for being an atheist. And this is what he had to say on the subject of miracles. Um, in an article posted in Forbes, of all places. The virgin birth, the resurrection, the raising of Lazarus, even the Old Testament miracles, all are freely used for religious propaganda, and they are very effective with an audience of unsophisticates and children. So, according to him, if you believe in miracles, you are at best unsophisticated, uh, maybe even a child. Um, So again, do you believe in miracles? Some are just going to say no because they haven't experienced one or seen one. Some are just going to be very hostile like Richard Dawkins would be. 
Now, for me, Richard Dawkins might think I'm pretty unsophisticated. I'm, I'm okay with that. Uh, but I absolutely believe in miracles. Uh, and part of why I answer, yes, I believe in miracles, uh, is because I believe in God. Now, if there was no God and I didn't believe in God, then I think miracles would seem at best absurd. So, for me, I absolutely believe in miracles because I believe in God. Uh, If you're looking for uh, a good summer read, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a great book called Miracles. And in his book, he gave a very helpful working definition of miracles. So before we go on talking about miracles, I wanted to give at least a working definition according to C.S. Lewis. And he said this, I use the word miracle to mean interference with nature by a supernatural power. Let me read that one more time because this is an important definition. I use the word miracle to mean an interference with nature by a supernatural power. Unless there exists, in addition to nature, so he's saying there is nature, there's laws of nature, unless there exists, in addition to nature, something else which we may call the supernatural, then there can be no miracles. No God, no miracles. But if there is a God, then the possibility of miracles happening and taking place is is a logical conclusion. But what I really wanted to hone in on, what Lewis describes, he says a miracle is an interference. What does that mean? Like, practically speaking, what does, if a miracle is an interference, what does that mean? This is an orange ball, and you all are about to witness a miracle. So, if you have cameras on your phone, go ahead and take them out now. The law of gravity says when I throw this up in the air, it's going to drop on the ground. And so every time I throw it up, it's going to come down. That is a natural law. Every time I throw it up, it goes down. But if I happen to throw it up and I... Did you see that? That was a miracle right there. Just in case you missed it, I want you to see. Let me step over here for you guys. So law of gravity states... You throw something up, it goes up, it's going to come down. But if I stop and catch the ball, I've interfered. I have not violated uh, the law of gravity. We don't need to redefine now the law of gravity. And interference is just simply, I've interfered with the ball dropping to the ground. There is a miracle ball for you. You might be able to sell that for all of 50 cents. Um, Now, I get that that might be a really simple, uh, very simple, uh, practical example of what a miracle is, but I just wanted to paint the picture, give a definition of a miracle is God interfering in the natural order to accomplish his purpose, whatever that purpose might be. Now, for me, if I really believe that God in God, and I believe that God is the creator and sustainer of all things, then is it really too complicated to think or to grasp the idea that God could interfere in the world that he created to accomplish his purpose? Like, is it too hard for me to think that he could intervene in the world that he created to accomplish something that he would like to do? And the answer would be no. I like how Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, he just said this, If there is a creator God, 
There is nothing illogical at all about the possibility of miracles. After all, he created everything out of nothing. It would hardly be a problem for him to rearrange parts of it as and when he wishes. So if you believe in God, but you can't get your mind around miracles, then I would have to say your view of God is, it's got to be small. But if you have just, if you do believe in God, then it's not illogical to think that God could interfere in the world that he created to accomplish something that would be his purpose, uh, one of his purposes. Now, I don't know if you have, and you might be one here who's thinking this, uh, the, the concept of miracles is actually the very thing that keeps you from faith. Because you, you hear stories in the Bible, and you're like, that, that's like fairy tales at best. There is no way that a guy named Moses parted the Red Sea. That's a great story to encourage a nation who needed some encouragement, but that's ridiculous. The virgin birth? Really? You actually believe in the virgin birth? How about the incarnation? God actually came down and was man and walked among us uh, in the God-man named Jesus. And then there's Jesus, he healed people, raised people back from the dead, he walked on water, and all of the, the stories, people are like, that is just, listen, if you want to use the Bible as just a way to encourage you because you're bummed out in life, then that's fine. But I cannot actually believe a story that is just filled with Miracle stories after miracle stories after miracle stories. Now, again, I don't know about you, but I know a lot of people in my life who this is the very thing that just keeps them from coming to faith because they just can't jump over the hurdle, so to speak, of miracles. They just don't know what to do with them. This morning, we're looking at two miracle stories. And as I share these miracle stories, I really am hoping to accomplish two things. I really want you to go away from here today uh, really encouraged and really inspired. I know sometimes I can be all intense and heavy and you're like, man, I got to go keep working on this. Today, I really want you going away saying, I am so encouraged and so inspired. And then I also, the second thing I want to accomplish is how do you answer people who are say miracles are ridiculous? They just don't happen. And the fact that you believe in them makes you even more ridiculous. I'll still hang out with you, but I think you're ridiculous. So how do you respond to the men or women in your life? And again, you might be one of them. What is the answer to how we understand and explain miracles? If you have a Bible, flip open to Acts chapter 9. And uh, just to set the scene, uh, we've been in Acts uh, 9 for a while. And on the forefront of the last few weeks has been this young man named Saul. And Saul, if you remember, was a a man who was just hell-bent on destroying Christians and Christianity. But then Saul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and his life was never the same. He had one interaction, one encounter with Christ, and it forever changed his life, and consequently forever changed the life of Christianity. That's what we've been talking about these past few weeks. But uh, this week, Luke, the author of Acts, turns our attention back to Peter. And I'm going to start in uh, Peter chapter, uh, chapter 9, uh, verse 32. Meanwhile, Peter traveled from place to place, and he came down to visit the believers in the town of Lydda. There he met a man named Aeneas, who had been paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. 
as best you can, uh, put yourself in the story, okay? We've got a guy whose name is Aeneas, and he's been paralyzed, not for a few days, not for a few weeks or months, but he's been paralyzed, paralyzed meaning he can't walk for eight years. Peter, verse 34, said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up, roll up your sleeping mat, and he was healed instantly. Then the whole population of Lydda and Sharon saw Aeneas walking around, and they turned to the Lord. That's miracle story number one. Peter just says to the guy, Jesus heals you, pick up your mat and walk. And a man who had not walked in eight years gets up and walks in front of the whole town. So this was not just Peter in an isolated section of the country where no one witnessed. The entire town knew this man, couldn't walk, saw this man now walking. That's miracle number one. Uh, Miracle number two would be verse 36. There was a believer in Joppa named Tabitha, which in Greek means Dorcas, or translated as Dorcas. She was always doing kind things for others and helping the poor. And about this time, she became ill and died. And her body was washed for burial and laid in an upstairs room. But the believers had heard that Peter was nearby at Lydda, so they sent two men to beg him, please come as soon as possible. Now let me stop there. The men and women in this town uh, have just witnessed uh, a friend. Her name is Dorcas. And she was a good woman, a helpful woman, a serving woman. And they lost her. She's dead. They are preparing her for her burial. And by the way, just in case you didn't know, you don't prepare people for burial unless they're dead. So she's dead. But they got this idea. Well, we heard Peter. We heard this guy Peter is nearby, only a handful of miles away. He's nearby. Just maybe, maybe if we call him, maybe God will do something with and through him to make a difference for our friend Dorcas, who is dead. Uh, we start or pick up the story again in uh, verse 39. So Peter returned with them, and as soon as he arrived, They took him to the upstairs room, and the room was filled with widows who were weeping and showing him the coats and the other clothes Dorcas had made for them. But Peter asked them all to leave the room, and then he knelt down and he prayed. He knelt down and he prayed. Turning to the body, he said, get up, Tabitha, and she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and he helped her up. And then he called in the widows and all the believers and he presented her to them alive. Verse 42, the news spread through the whole town. Many believed the Lord and Peter stayed a long time in Joppa, living with Simon, a tanner of hides. Now, if you were just to, someone read you that story, maybe outside of this context, um, Maybe you could just say, you know what, it's church, they just read those kind of crazy stories. But if you heard this story in just a different context, and it was a buddy retelling a story of something that happened over the weekend, and your friend was like, hey, amazing, a man who was paralyzed, he's now walking, and actually a person who was dead, she's now alive. How would you respond if you heard that story? I mean, to be honest, I'm guessing most of us would be skeptical. I'm sure some would celebrate and say, that's incredible, that's amazing, that's an absolute class A, God-ordained miracle. But most of us 
would be very skeptical. And by the way, there's a lot of people in our culture, in our context, who are absolutely skeptical of a story like that. But this morning, I want to take this story and share two things with you that I hope encourage and inspire, and then finish with one more thing of how do we answer people who just hear a story like that and and just think it's crazy. So I'll share with you essentially three things. Number one would be this. encourage you to write it down. You are where you are, but you don't have to stay there. God has more. You are where you are, but you don't have to stay there. God has more. Does anyone remember any stories of Peter and who he was before Jesus called him to follow him? Just a normal guy, just a normal dude who was a fisherman, minding his own business, and Jesus said, come follow me. Do any of you remember the stories of Peter? He just seemed to continually trip over himself, either putting his foot in, the, in his mouth, either doubting Jesus, denying even knowing Jesus, and in Jesus' biggest moment of need, completely deserts him. See, those are stories of Peter. That's who this guy is. In Matthew 14, this is when Peter tried to walk on the water because Jesus was on the water. Jesus immediately reached out, and, and he's drowning now. Jesus reached out his hand and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why do you doubt me? And then towards the end of uh, Matthew's gospel, uh, when Jesus is saying, all of you are going to just completely desert me, and this is what Peter said. Well, Peter declared, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter's response, no, Peter insisted, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And a few hours later, he's swearing and cussing that he doesn't even know who this Jesus is. Do you think if you would have told Peter, hey, Peter, in a few short years, uh, you're going to see amazing. You are going to see at your your command, as it were, uh, a man who could not walk begin to start walking. Peter, you're going to pray, and at the end of your prayer, you're going to look at a woman who is dead and tell her to get up, and she's going to get up. Do you think if you would have told Peter that he would be part of something like that, he would have been like, yeah, I could picture that. I could totally picture that. The same guy who deserted and denied even knowing who Jesus was. I don't think Peter could picture that at all. But what I love about these two stories is simply this. You are where you are, but you don't have to stay there because God has more for you. How is it possible that the guy who denied, uh, who doubted, who uh, completely deserted Jesus became this man who was witness to these incredible things that God was doing with him and through him. So what happened to Peter that he's got a front row seat to all of these miracles because he didn't used to, just a normal guy? My answer, my only answer to that would simply be this. Peter continually stepped forward, empowered by the Spirit of God. He was the guy that just kept stepping forward. Why? Because he was empowered by the Spirit of God at work in him. This is uh, the very beginning of the story of Acts in chapter 2. Read to you a few different verses. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit. And jump to verse 12. They stood there amazed and perplexed. 
The crowds were asking, what could all of this mean, they asked each other. And then verse 14, then Peter stepped forward. What I love about what I see in Peter in the midst of these miracle stories is he was the guy that just continually stepped forward. He didn't settle to stay where he was as the doubter, as the denier, uh, as the deserter, as the guy who just kept putting his foot in his mouth. He was the guy because he had received the Spirit of God in his life. He just continually stepped forward. And it's amazing. If you're that person, the person that just continues to step forward, making yourself just available to do whatever God wants you to do, you're going to see God do some pretty amazing things. Now, I have no idea how many men and women passed the paralyzed man by. For eight years, he'd been laying there. I have no idea how many people passed him by, but I'm guessing that every time somebody passed him by, they passed him by and said, well, there's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing I can do about it until Peter sees him. And what I love about what Peter does is, well, I'm like everyone else. There's nothing that I can do for this man, but I know someone who can. I know somebody who can. And then, and then Peter just says uh, in Acts 9.34, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. And immediately Aeneas got up. Everyone else would pass this guy by, but not Peter. Peter was new. There's nothing special about him, but he knew someone special. And so rather than passing him by saying, I can't do anything for you, man, he looked at Aeneas and said, Jesus Christ, he heals you. Not Peter, not anybody else, but Jesus is the one who can heal you. And he heals you now. And he says to Aeneas, get up, start walking, pick up your mat. A question I wrestle with is, how many people do I pass by on a daily basis and just declare in my mind, it's not like I walk people, walk by people like, yep, can't do anything for you, can't do anything for you. But in my head, in my heart, I walk by and I'm like, there's nothing I can do for you. And I just keep going. Well, that's me staying where I am. And what inspires me, encourages me about the example of Peter in these miracle stories is you are where you are, but you don't have to stay there. I'm convinced God has something more for you. And the something more that God has for you is not just for you, but for the men and the women that are around you. You know where you are. And I guess a question before I share the second point of encouragement would just be, simply be this. Do you want to stay there? Do you, just, do you want to stay where you are? Like in 10 years, would you be content just to be in the exact same place? And I'm not talking about geographic location, relationship status, career status. I'm talking about where you are right now with God. Would you be content just to stay there? Or is there something in you that hears that point and said, I am where I am, but I don't want to be here. I don't want to stay there. And if God has something more for me, I want to step forward into that. And so be encouraged by that. That you are where you are, but you don't have to stay there because God simply has more for you. Second point that I would share with you is just way of encouragement and hopefully inspiration would be this. Number two, you can do what Jesus did because the Spirit of Jesus lives in you. You can do 
what Jesus did because the Spirit of Jesus lives in you. I think this is one of those points we'd really like to believe, but we have a hard time believing it, not because we doubt the power of Jesus, but because we cannot even vision ourselves ever doing what Jesus did. You hear that and you're like, yeah, I, I believe that Jesus is powerful, but I, I just really struggle to think that I could ever live a life where I am doing the things that Jesus actually did. And that one thought right there prevents you from moving forward, stepping forward, entering into doing all of the things that Jesus would want you to do, things that he did. And what I love about the example of Peter, remember, he was the guy that denied and doubted and deserted, continually just put his foot in his mouth. Peter is like, well, if Jesus did it and the spirit of Jesus lives in me, then let's try. Let's step forward. And this is what he did. In Acts 9.34, he said, uh, Aeneas, Peter said, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up, roll up your mat. And immediately Aeneas got up. You jump to the other miracle story, uh, story, Acts 9. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and he prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. And she opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand, helped her to her feet, and then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented, them, presented her to them alive. Do you know what Peter really did here? These are duplicate miracles of something that Jesus had done. So Peter is doing the exact same thing that he had seen Jesus do months prior. These are the two miracles in Acts 9 are duplicate miracles of something that Jesus had done. This is in John chapter 5, verse 8. There was actually a man who was paralyzed, could not walk for 38 years. And Jesus, in verse, John chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus told him, Stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. The second miracle, Mark chapter 5, verse 40 through 42, um, Jairus. Uh, his daughter had died. And this is the story. But he made them all leave. Jesus comes on the scene. The little girl uh, is up in her room. Uh, she's been dead now for a while. Jesus clears the room. Uh, uh, verse 40. But he made them all leave, and he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Peter's there. He's watching. He's watching Jesus do this. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talika kum, which means little girl, get up. And the girl who was 12 years old immediately stood up and walked around. I can't oversimplify this enough, but I'm just convinced that Peter did what Peter did because he saw Jesus do what Jesus did. He was literally mimicking what he had seen in Jesus. And because he was convinced that the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of God, was living within him, then why not? Now, uh, I absolutely love, uh, you know, Peter. It wasn't like, hey, my name's Peter. I'm an apostle. I heal you. It wasn't like he did something in his own strength. It wasn't like he depended on himself. It was, no, Jesus Christ heals you. And the man was healed. And then he kneels down and he prays. He prays to God. 
And I have no idea how long he prayed, but the first thing he did is he prayed to God because he knew that there was nothing he could do, but he knew that God could do something. So he asked the God who could do something to do something, and God did. He didn't depend on himself. So his confidence was absolutely in Jesus. And actually, he even said the same things that Jesus said. Get up and walk and pick up your mat while you're at it. Now, why would Peter ask the guy to pick up his mat? Like, what's so significant about that detail? Jesus did it, so why did Peter do it? All right, let me have a, a moment of honesty here. You've got to raise your hands. How many of you made your bed this morning? Wow, that is terrible. That is terrible. For those of you who did not raise your hands, you cannot play in my game anymore. But for those of you who did raise your hands and you said, yes, I made my bed, why'd you make your bed this morning? Seems a bit silly. You're going to get back in it, right? So what's the point of making your bed? Well, obviously, for some people, it just looks aesthetically nice. It doesn't, you don't like a mess, so you make your bed. But we make our beds, well, only half of us, but the half of us who do, we make our beds because we're not going to use them again until it's time uh, to go to bed once again. So if you're not using something, you, you put it away or you make it until it's ready to be used once again. And so the reason that G- or Peter tells this man, like Jesus told the man, pick up your mat is simply, man, you don't need it anymore. You can pick up that thing that you've been lying on for eight years because now you don't need to lie down anymore. You can walk. You'll use it again at nighttime when you lay it up, uh, when you lay down. But when you wake up in the morning, guess what? You make your bed again. Because you don't live in your bed. You don't live on that mat anymore. Peter's confidence was not in himself. His confidence was so high in Jesus that he said exactly what Jesus said. And he saw the exact same results. Now, my question What might it look like for you and me to begin doing what Jesus did? Clearly, we're looking at two miracle stories. But if you're familiar with the life of Christ, he didn't just walk around healing people. He didn't heal everybody. Healing was a big part of what he did. But if you consider what Jesus did, Jesus was encouraging people, blessing people, inspiring people, providing people for, uh, for people, leading and guiding and instructing and comforting, but also confronting, training and empowering people. So yes, we are looking at miracle stories here, but the question is, what might it look like for you to begin doing exactly what Jesus did, holistically? Not just miraculous healings, that's part of it, and I believe, by the way, that still happens today. So what does it look like for you and I to do that? And this might be too uh, oversimplified for you, but the only answer that I have is simply this. I I just repent of doing a self-empowered life, meaning I stop trying to live life in my own strength, in my own power, in my own ability. And if we're honest, a lot of us just live that way. 
We're trying to fix things or correct things or make things better or create new things, but all the things that we're trying to do, we're just trying to do in our own power. And Peter didn't do that. He was convinced that the Spirit of Jesus was living in him, and because of that, he could begin doing anything and everything that Jesus had done, including looking at a paralyzed person and saying, get up and walk, pick up your mat. If you're convinced, if you're a Christian, I would want you to be convinced of this thing. And the thing I would want you to be convinced of is you have the Spirit of God living in you. And if you have the Spirit of God living in you, that means you can do what Jesus did. The answer to how do we live more like Jesus is not try harder, is not be more disciplined. It's actually just repenting from trying to do it on my own and simply just turning to the Spirit of Jesus lives in me. Romans 8 says it very clearly. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Isn't that amazing? I I hope that encourages you and inspires you, that whatever you're dealing with, whatever difficulty is in your path right now, whatever issue you might be facing, the Spirit of God lives in you. Whatever complication you see around you, whatever friend that you think you'll never be able to reach or connect with or build a a healthy, meaningful relationship, the the people that you think will never, ever care or be interested in the things that you are, specifically the things of God. You have the Spirit of God who lives in you. You can do what Jesus did because the Spirit of Jesus lives in you. If there is an area in your life right now that you're just really trying hard to fix, you're just trying hard to improve, you're just trying hard to make better, whether it's something just really personal to you uh, or whether it's a situation that's beyond your control, as it were, can I just tell you, uh, stop trying to do it. And if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of Jesus. Jesus, would you do this right here? Would you heal? Would you help? Would you fix? Would you correct? And watch what Jesus would do. Uh, my last point that I would share with you is this. And, you know, this is the, the point I wanted to share about to the people in our lives. And it, again, it might be you uh, that's here, that miracles, they just don't happen. It's too far-fetched to think that God intervenes, as it were, to accomplish something different. So what would be your response to somebody who says, I just can't believe in miracles, how do you respond to them? And uh, number three, uh, hopefully will help with that. Uh, so final point is this. If you know Jesus, you are the greatest miracle you'll ever see. If you know Jesus, if you have a relationship with God, you are the greatest miracle that you will ever see. In other words, if you are walking with God, you are a walking miracle. The paralyzed person who could walk, absolutely, that's a miracle. The person who was dead but then raised back to life, absolutely a miracle. But what good is it to experience a physical healing of someone who could no longer walk, only to see them healed but never walk with God and spend an eternity apart from Him? What good is it to raise somebody back to life only to have that same life die again and die apart from actually knowing God? 
the greatest miracle that you will ever witness is you being in relationship with God. St. Augustine in his book, uh, Confession, essentially said this. I never have any difficulty believing in miracles since I experienced the miracle of a change in my own heart. Went on later to talk about that's the greatest miracle. My own heart that was once hard against God, rejecting God. That his heart was the greatest miracle. Jesus said this exact same thing. Disciples came back one time totally stoked and fired up. Jesus, you wouldn't believe it. We've been healing people. We've been casting out demons. It's been amazing. And you know what Jesus said to them? This is in Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Uh, He said this, Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That was Jesus' way of saying, Hey, guys, miraculous healings, there's a place for them. And they are absolutely amazing. But what's even greater is knowing that your name is securely written in heaven for eternity. I don't know if that's a new thought for you, but I hope that encourages you. That there will be no greater miracle that you will ever see or ever witness than the miracle of your heart that has been changed to be in relationship with God, to know God, to love God, to receive uh, the love that God has for you. So, How might we answer those who doubt the presence of miracles in our world? You. (laughs) You're the best evidence. There's a a time and a place to have conversation about science and natural laws. There's times and place to have conversations about philosophy. Those are good things and those are important things. But I can't point to science or philosophy or any other study such as that To say, well, here is your defining proof of miracles. You will always be the defining proof, the evidence of the existence of miracles in our world. If miracles do happen, and the greatest miracle is you and I, our hearts turning, changing towards God, being in relationship with God. Well, why does God do that? Why does God interfere, as it were? Like, what's the point of what happened in Acts 9 of someone who was paralyzed but now walking, someone who was dead but now is alive? If a miracle is God interfering, as it were, what is he trying to accomplish with miracles? I could safely say that God is not trying to impress you with cool tricks. I could safely uh, tell you he's not trying to overwhelm you with like, well, look what I can do now. The reason, the primary reason of God interfering, the primary reason of miracles, the primary reason of you as a great miracle is simply this. God's trying to get the world's attention and he wants to use you to get the attention of the world. If you look at the results of these miracles, Acts 9, 35, all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. 9.42, this became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. God accomplishes many things through miracles. He demonstrates compassion, provision, kindness, willingness to answer prayers. But the primary reason that God intervenes is so that the world world that's turned away from him would turn towards him. That's why miracles happen. 
He intervenes so that a world that's turned away from him would turn towards him. Now, the question would be, if God's heart is that all men would be turned towards him, then why don't more miracles happen? Why don't more miracles happen? Now, I really want you to think about this. If the greatest miracle of all is you, specifically your heart turned towards God, then how might your ans- you answer that question? Sit with this just for a second. Why don't more miracles happen? If the greatest miracle is your heart turned towards God, how would you answer that question? Isn't the, the point, the answer to that question, doesn't it just really become, why aren't those who've experienced the greatest miracle of all living and acting like it? If you and I are the greatest miracles that we'd ever see, uh, ever know, then why don't we live and act like men and women as miracles? If you're thinking, you know, okay, Michael, that's a good point, but if God would just heal more people, raise more people from the dead, then I'm pretty confident more people would believe. And this might be hard to believe, but I would completely disagree with you. How many times have you ever just thought to yourself, man, if God would just do it this way, then my friend would totally believe. Like if that person who died just got up and started walking around again, that would be amazing. And everyone who saw that, witnessed it, heard of it, they would absolutely believe in Jesus. If more if just people were walking through hospitals and hospitals were empty because everyone was getting healed, everybody would believe. Do you really think that would happen? Do you think everyone would see these miracles of healing or whatever the miracle might be and credit be like, wow, that is the gracious hand of God interfering in our world so that he would get our attention and I would begin to praise, worship, adore him. I would love him more than I love anything else. Jesus didn't heal everybody, but he healed a lot of people. And guess what? The world put him on a cross. He died alone. So if your thought is, well, plan B should be more miracles in our world, more people would believe, Jesus did that. Jesus healed a lot of people, and a lot of people did come to believe. But at the end of the day, Jesus died hanging on a cross because the world rejected him. And what I see in miracles, what God wants to do with and through miracles, is he wants to use you, a demonstration of a class A miracle, to communicate to the world what God can do with and through you. So I'm not saying or suggesting that heal miracles, they don't happen, they do. But what I want you just to simply know and believe is that God uses the greatest miracle to give birth to more miracles. To those who just doubt the reality of miracles or just even doubt the existence of God um, in our world, there will be no greater proof than you. A changed heart, a transformed life. People can, you know, deny and refute stories and be like, well, Michael, that happened 2,000 years ago. Or I could tell you stories of things happening in other parts of this world. Well, that's just a great story for another part of the world, but... The greatest evidence 
of miracles, the greatest evidence of the existence of God in our world is going to be you. Jesus said something pretty profound. He said this, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I've done and even greater works. The greater works that Jesus is referring to is not more healing miracles, but actually spiritual healing, spiritual miracles of men and women turning back towards God. You are where you are, but you don't have to stay there. God has more. You can do what Jesus did because the Spirit of Jesus lives in you. And number three, if you know Jesus, you are the greatest miracle you will ever see. I hope that encourages you. And I hope you can leave this place today inspired and even equipped to say, you know what? I don't need to come up with some scientific evidence or philosophical proofs for the existence of miracles. It's just me. I can live as one who is a walking miracle because I'm walking with God. So be encouraged by these things, but also don't be afraid to be challenged, to ask yourself a tough question. Am I living like I'm a miracle? I don't know, if you were paralyzed for 10 years and all of a sudden you got healed and were able to completely walk again and run and jump and dance, would you tell people? Or would you continue to sit in the chair that can find you for the years of your paralysis? I'm guessing most of you would be like, I don't need to sit anymore. I can stand, run, and jump because I was healed. I experienced a miracle. You tell people. You talk about it. You would love it. You would enjoy it. So if the greatest miracle is your heart turned towards God, I just I want to encourage you. Enjoy walking with God. Enjoy telling other people about the miracle that God's done in you. I know this might sound odd, but I am the greatest miracle I know. And if that sounds at all prideful or weird or arrogant, I know what I was like. I, I just, I know what I was like. I know how hard I was and bitter and angry and just filled with lust and pride. So I can say with confidence, I am the greatest miracle I know. Because I know what I was like before God grabbed hold of my life. And I still got a long way to go. God is refining and sanctifying. But I know where I was. And I'm not there anymore. And you, as well, if you are a Christian, you'll never see a greater miracle than the person that looks at you in the face every day in the mirror. And my heart, just in even preparing and thinking through this message and praying about it was, I was really praying specifically that someone today would experience a miracle. Not just a healing miracle, but a a miracle of the heart. That you came in, your heart was one way towards God, but you'd actually leave here with your heart turned towards God. That something that you heard, something that you saw, something that only God could do, spoke deep into the depths of your heart that screamed, I'm real, I'm here, and I love you. And you are walking this way alone, and I want to walk with you. If that's you, receive that miracle today. Receive that miracle today. And you do so by simply just saying, Jesus, I receive you. 
Jesus, I accept, I believe, I acknowledge, I confess that Jesus, you are God and you are good. And that through faith in Jesus is the only way that we know God. 